Ezekiel chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 14, the title tonight is All Idolaters Condemned. All Idolaters Condemned. And in these verses, Ezekiel will call the elders of Israel, or the leaders, to repent. And you can't help but notice as you read through the Old and New Testament that repentance is God's message to his own people to those who say they belong to him. The message is repent and turn to God. That will be Ezekiel's message here. The only time Ezekiel was not confined to his house was when God told him to leave. He was, he was told to be confined to his house in, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 24. And he wasn't allowed to speak, according to Je uh, Ezekiel 3, 26, unless he was given a message from the Lord. The elders of the people who were in exile, they came to visit Ezekiel to see what he was doing, really to see what he had to say about the situation that they were in. Ezekiel gave them two messages from God. Two prophecies are given here in chapter 14. The first one is in verses 1 through 11 and forms a conclusion to the message against the false prophets and prophetesses that we studied in chapter 13, verses 1 through, 24, uh, 1 through 23 last week. There are two parts to this message. First, the elders seek a word from Ezekiel in verses 1 through 5. And second is the announcement of judgment against Israel in verses 6 through 11. Verses 1 through 14 covers the prophecy of judgment for the people and the leaders consulting in idols. The prophecy is a warning to those people who supported and listened to the false prophets. And the warning was that, hey, you guys are going to receive the same judgment that's going to fall on the false prophets for worshiping and consulting idols. Ezekiel pointed out that those people who supported these false prophets, they were responsible for the false prophets' so-called success because if the people hadn't believed upon the false prophets, there would be no need for them. But the people fed into them. If the people hadn't believed the lies of these false prophets uh, who, are represent, who claim to be representatives of God, there would have been no need for their services. Their practices would have stopped a long time ago. So let's begin with chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, as God exposes the hidden sin. Not really hidden from God, but the people thought it was hidden. Verses 1 through 5, and it says, Now some of the elders of Israel came to me, that is Ezekiel, and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. God says, Should I let myself be inquired of them at all? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Trust, thus says the Lord God. Every one of the house of Israel who, who sets, upon, uh, sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols. So a group of the elders or leaders of Israel, they came to Ezekiel seeking instruction. What has, what, what has the Lord got to say about the situation that we're in? And these guys seem to be so spiritual. They pretended like they wanted to hear what the man of God, Ezekiel, has to say. 
You know, it's like coming to church with a Bible under your, under your arm and pretending you want to hear the word of God and maybe you want to serve the Lord. These leaders already showed a half-hearted devotion. They prayed to be delivered from Babylon, but they weren't ready to give God his rightful place in their hearts. Their prayer was really, Lord, deliver me from the consequences of sin rather than the sin that grieves your heart. A lot of times that's what we pray about. Oh, Lord, you know, I'm suffering through the consequences of something that I did. You know, take the consequences away. Rather than say, Lord, forgive me for the, for the sin that I, that I committed that grieves your heart. The people had accepted Babylonian values and their goals and their standards, but they still thought of themselves as worshipers of the true and living God. And so God said to Ezekiel, you know, they, they want to come and ask me questions. They want to come and, and inquire of me. He says in verse 3, should I let myself be inquired of at, uh, at all by them? Should I let them ask me questions at all? He's saying, why should I listen to their requests? They're living a lie. They're worshiping idols. They're, count, they're, 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 they're consulting with idols and they're, they're, they're appearing to be spiritual. You know, why should I listen to them? These leaders serve the worst idols, the idols of their minds. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, The things which the Gentiles sacrifice, notice they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Idols are demons, Paul said. Because an idol is nothing more than the creation of a man's mind. The people's thoughts were under pagan control, so they were open to doing all kinds of ungodly and wicked things. This kind of sin was enough to keep a person out of the fellowship of worship because it was a spiritual stumbling block, it says in verse 4. Any Israelite who worshipped self-made idols was asking for God's judgment upon them. In verse 4, God says, I'm going to judge those according to what they deserve. Why? He says that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart. I'm going to judge them based on what they're doing. I will do this to capture the minds and hearts of all my people. In the middle, in the middle of such an idolatrous society, there's a battle that's being fought for the minds of Israel. Just like in our nation today, the battle for God is in the mind. You know, like back in the garden, Eve said, did God really say? You know, the Satan whispers in our, and then we begin to say, hmm, did God really mean that? Does, did he really, will he really do that? Let me think about it. God told Ezekiel that these elders were like some of the spiritual leaders Ezekiel had seen in his vision in the temple. Remember back in chapter 8? Outwardly, they were serving the Lord, but inwardly, they were secretly worshiping idols in their own rooms. And instead of having a love for God and his word in their hearts, the elders had idols in their hearts. And yet these leaders, these elders, devotedly sat with Ezekiel here in verse 1, and they acted so spiritual. But to them, listening to Ezekiel speak was more like, you know, being entertained by this, this religious figure. It was more like being uh, religiously entertained than receiving spiritual enlightenment. It says in Ezekiel chapter 33, 31, I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation. It says, Son of man, again, another name for Ezekiel, God speaking. Son of man, 
your people talk about you in their houses and they whisper about you at the doors. They say to each other, come on, let's go hear the prophet tell us what the Lord is saying. So my people come pretending to be sincere and sit before you. They listen to your words, but they have no intention of doing what you say. Their mouths are full of lustful words and their hearts seek only after money. You are entertaining to them. You are very entertaining to them, Ezekiel. Like someone who sings love songs with a beautiful voice or plays fine music on an instrument. They hear what you say, but they don't act on it. But when all of these terrible things happen to them, as they certainly will, then, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. They were like the people in Isaiah's day, uh, Isaiah's day who said, the people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far, far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by routine. They drew near to God with their words, but not with their hearts. Isaiah 29, 13. In Matthew 15, 8 and 9, Jesus said that the Pharisees in his day were guilty of doing the same thing, committing the same sin. And so are some professed Christians today. Idolatry in the hearts puts a stumbling block before the eyes, and this leads them to a terrible fall. Believers today, they probably wouldn't actually love and worship an idol, a statue of some kind made out of wood or stone or whatever, an actual image. But here's the thing, anything that replaces God or competes for his affection, our affections, I should say, or our obedience is positively an idol. The idol could be wealth like it was with Achan in Josh 7 or Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 or the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. It could be your career. It could be a person, a relationship, whatever that you're, you're spending your time and affections on. It's an idol. Jonah's idol was a selfish devotion and loyalty to God that made him turn his back on the Gentiles who needed to hear his message from God about his love and grace just as much as anybody else. Pontius Pilate's idol was getting people's approval and being popular and keeping his job in the Roman Empire. So whatever we have in our hearts, they influence their, their influences. They influence what we see. And they influence how we live. If Jesus is Lord in our hearts, then there won't be any room for idols. Loving and accepting what's false keeps us from knowing and loving what's true. And it results in us becoming separated from the Lord. By worshiping false gods, Israel deserted the Lord, whom they had married at Mount Sinai, mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 2. And they needed to turn their hearts and their love back to the Lord. God said in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I remember how eager you were to please me. Oh, long ago, you were like a bride, a young bride. How you loved me and followed me, even through the barren wilderness. Like the believers in the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, they left their first love. They left their first love. It means they ignored their first love. God told Ezekiel that the Jewish people had deserted him in order to follow after idols. And God said he was going to discipline them in order to get them back and to, and to recapture their hearts. Idols in the heart will keep us from communication with God and leads to practicing sin in our life. Verses 6 through 11. 
Therefore, Ezekiel, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. And they shall bear their iniquity, and punishment of the prophet uh, shall be the same as the punishment of, of the one who inquired, that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all of their transgressions, but they may be my people, and I may be their God, says the Lord God. In verses 6 through 11, God says, anyone, any Israelite or any stranger that is alien, they were, they were being admonished here to turn back to God. Now, the reference to the stranger here may mean those in Jerusalem who were taken to Babylon at the time of the Babylonian invasion. Or it might be referring to those, those in Babylon who became worshipers of the true and the living God. Those who went to the false prophets and followed their advice God says, you are going to be punished by me personally. And Hebrews says, hey, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Their judgment would become an example to everyone, God says. They would be an example. They would be examples of a bad outcome because of a bad life. The false prophets were exempt from the judgment. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, they weren't exempt from, their, from the judgment. The false prophets were not exempt from the judgment that was about to fall on the land. God warned them. He warned them also about the coming judgment in verse 9. And verse 9 clearly says that the dishonesty of these false prophets was allowed and even encouraged by God as part of the judgment process, as part of the will of God. So the people and the prophets of the exiles were equally guilty and were equally responsible for God's judgment. Now, this punishment was to be with a purpose, notice in according to verse 11. He said, so that the people of Israel will learn not to stray from me. And the punishment was, was meant to be remedial, that is corrective, to correct the problem in their lives, not to be punitive or retaliatory or not vengeful. The punishment was designed to remove idolatry from the people's lives, minds, and hearts and to renew their covenant fellowship and loyalty to the Lord. Repentance is a change of mind. It means turning from sin and turning to the Lord. And the Jewish exiles needed to change their minds about idols and the sin of worshiping idols. And then they needed to turn to the true and living God who alone alone is worthy to be worshipped. And it says that God would judge each sinner personally. In verse 7 it says he would deal with each one personally and that he would use some of them as examples to warn the other exiles there in verse 8. Now when you first read verse 9, it seems to give the impression that it was the Lord's fault that people were worshipping idols. 
because he says, I induced them to do this thing. But that's not the case. He says, if a prophet is deceived, notice, into giving a message, it's because I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. Now, what that means is that, now again, everybody in Israel knew the Ten Commandments. And they understood that it was a sin to make and worship idols of any kind. So even if someone very close to them talked them into practicing idolatry, they weren't to give in. They weren't to be persuaded, uh, persuaded by the people who were trying to convince them to worship idols. What it's saying here is God allowed these temptations to test the people to make sure that they were loyal to Him. Now, it's not that God doesn't know what's in their heart. He does. We don't know what's in our heart, and God will test us to show us what's in our heart. So it wasn't that God didn't know what was in the heart of man, but we don't know what's in our own hearts. So these tests help us to stay humble before the Lord and to walk in the fear of God. There's an illustration of this truth that's seen in 1 Kings chapter 22 against the false prophets who led Ahab astray. God allowed a lying spirit to work in the minds of the false prophets to convince Ahab to go into battle. And in doing so, they were part of the reason for God's judgment on the king and the kingdom. Micaiah, the true prophet, told the congregation what would happen. But they rejected the truth and they trusted in the false prophet's lies instead. And as a result, God spared the life of the king of Judah, but he took the life of wicked king Ahab. You see, when people won't receive, as Paul said, the love of the truth that they might be saved, God may send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie so that they all may be condemned. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 and 11. If you don't believe in the truth, what else do you have to believe in? But a lie. A lie. It's the condition of the person's heart that determines how the person responds to the Lord's test. Because God deals with people according to their hearts. The thinking of the lost world today is that there are no absolutes. Everything's relative. So there can be no truth. But Satan is a liar, a deceiver, and he's blinded the minds of people so that they believe the lies and they reject the truth of God. You see, we have to do all that we can to share the truth of the word of God with the blind and with the deaf world. Trusting the Holy Spirit to open their eyes and to remove the scales from their eyes and save them by His grace. Now, verses 12 through 23 covers the prophecy of the four judgments of, of, of Jerusalem. So the second prophecy continues the same judgment by explaining four judgments that were to come upon Jerusalem and the irreversible nature of that judgment. The four judgments of Jerusalem were introduced back in chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. And here they're reviewed again. There's the, there would be the famine would be one of the judgments here in verses 12 through 14. Wild beasts was the other in verses 15 through 16 here. Then the sword in verses 17 through 18. And pestilence in verses 19 through 21. So the chapter ends with an assurance that this devastation was fair and necessary in verses 22 through 23. You see, when God brings judgment upon people, they can't say, I didn't know. They can't say, that's not fair. They can't say, I don't deserve. Because God is all-knowing. 
Therefore, when he judges, he has all the facts. So his righteous, is, his judgment is fair. It is righteous and it is true. They were also a part of divine judgment that was associated uh, with the end time in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. The chapter, like I said, ends with, with the assurance that this devastation was fair and necessary. These four judgments were the ones that people were afraid of the most. And in this particular message, the Lord emphasized one fact that was undeniable. There would be no escape from the judgment of God. Maybe some of the Jews remembered how their father Abraham prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah and how the Lord promised to spare the city if he could find ten righteous men in the city. God God told Jeremiah, stop praying for the people because they were beyond hope in Jeremiah 7. And how he would tell Ezekiel that even the presence of three righteous men who the Jews deeply respected, they wouldn't be enough to cause God to save the city of Jerusalem. Look at verses 12 through 14. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it, and I will stretch out my hand against, and I will cut off its supply of bread and send salmon, uh, famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. So the first judgment is, is famine. God said he would bring a terrible famine among the people, and he would cut off the food supply to the men and the animals. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel mentioned this judgment, and it came, uh, to, and it came to pass just as promised. Because God in his covenant with Israel had warned that famine would, be, would come if the people disobeyed his word. The leaders argued that surely there has to be enough, enough righteous men in Jerusalem to turn away God's anger. But God then shut them up when he said, hey, if Noah was here and Daniel was here and Job was in this city, not even these three righteous men could deliver you. Only themselves. But they could not save the city. Now, why did the Lord choose these three men in particular? Well, first of all, all three of these men are recognized as righteous because all of them were tested and they were all found to be faithful men in the Old Testament. Noah was tested by the flood. Daniel was tested in the lion's den. Job was tested by the painful trials that, he, that, that Satan brought upon him and they were all, all three were men of faith. Noah's faith helped save his family and the animal world. Daniel's faith saved his own life and the lives of his three friends. And Job's faith saved his three friends from God's judgment. But the faith and righteousness of these three men could not be passed on to others. Noah's family had to trust God for themselves and enter into the ark. Daniel's friends had to pray and trust God. Job's friends had to repent and bring the proper sacrifices to God. You see, there's no such thing as borrowed faith. We cannot pass it on to our family. We can't pass it on to anybody. Each one has to make the decision of themselves, for themselves, to put their faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the responsibility of each person to God is a, is a main subject in the book of Ezekiel. And he'll deal with it more in chapter 18. God does not punish people because of the sins of others. We will be punished because of our own sins. Nor will God accept the righteousness of others to make up for the wicked works of sinners. The principle is made clear in the law of Moses and the covenant that God made with Israel. The only time that God did not follow this principle was when Jesus Christ, God's son, died on the cross because he suffered for the sins of the whole world. When we trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then we receive the gift of his righteousness. You see, it's his righteousness that enables us to stand before God, that enables us to, to, be ent to, to enter into heaven. And God accepts us because of his son. Verses 15 and 16. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they empty it and make it so desolate that no man, that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even though these three men, again speaking of these three men, were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, only they would be delivered and the land would be desolate. So the second judgment that the, the people feared was wild beasts. Wild beasts in the land. This judgment was also mentioned in the covenant, in Leviticus 26 too. God said, <clears throat> I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children and destroy your cattle and make you few in number and your highway shall be desolate. The Lord gave Israel victory in the promised land in about seven years. But the mopping up operation took a little longer. God gave the Jews victory over the people living there little by little so that the land wouldn't go back to its natural state and have wild animals take over it again. But now in a developed land with many people, towns and cities, the animals would still take over at the command of God, as he says here. And here's the sad thing. It would be the innocent children who would suffer the most. But God says, even if these three righteous men were living in the land, they couldn't deliver anybody but themselves. Verses 17 and 18. Or if I bring a sword on the land, and I say, sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only themselves would be delivered. The third judgment the people feared was the sword, which means war. The word sword is used at least 86 times in the book of Ezekiel, and the Babylonian army would cover the land like a cloud and they would show no mercy. They would surround Jerusalem, and they would hold Jerusalem under siege until all of its food ran out, and its defenses broke down and failed them. And again, he says, Noah, Daniel, and Job's presence here in the city could not save the city. Verses 19 and 20. Or if I send a pestilence into the land and pour out my fury on it, in blood and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would neither deliver son nor daughter, they would deliver only themselves by their own righteousness. Here's the final judgment of the four that the people feared the most was pestilence, which usually brings along with it famine and war. Dying people, 
decomposing bodies certainly don't make a a, a surrounded city a, a very healthy place to live in. So God gave them the warning about the inability of these three righteous men to rescue the people. There, there was no way they were going to escape God's judgment. It was repeated four times, emphasizing this great truth, which, which definitely the people, which got, gave the message, it got across to the elders. But the Jewish people, they had a tendency to rest all of their hopes on the righteousness of their great men, their so-called leaders. Both John the Baptist and Jesus warned the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they could not please God just because Abraham was their father. <clears throat> they, also, they, they couldn't, you know, Moses. You know, they, they couldn't be saved because of Moses because he was their leader. You know, in Psalm 49, 6 through 8, God speaking again of, of the wealthy in this situation, he said, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them by any means can redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly. And you can see the cost when you look at the cross, what Jesus paid for our sins. Let's close with verses 21 through 23. 21 through 23. For thus says the Lord God, how much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword, famine, wild beast and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it yet behold there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out both sons and daughters surely they will come out to you and you will see their ways and their doings then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that i have brought upon jerusalem all that i have brought upon it and they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings and you shall know that i have done nothing without cause that i have done in it says the lord god So God's judgments here in verses 21 through 23 are justified. God is telling him here, I am just in what I am doing in judgment. He says the absence of even these three righteous people in Jerusalem would make God's judgments on the city even worse. And when all four of his judgments came together, man, it would really be bad. No doubt the false prophets and some of the other captives would question the Lord. You know, they'd argue that, hey, Lord, you're being awful hard on us. That is Judah and Jerusalem. But it says in his, but in his grace, it says he'd allow some of the people to escape the judgment and be taken captive to Babylon. When the exiles who came before them to Babylon see the wickedness of these people, they will have to agree, man, the Lord was right. The Lord was just and fair in his judgments. The hearts of these survivors must have been hopelessly sinful if they could watch the siege, watch what was going on, watching thousands of people die and being spared themselves and still not repent and turn to the Lord. And there are people like that, and we'll see them, or we won't see them, but we read about them in the book of Revelation during the tribulation period. They'll be seeing the death and, and the suffering and the devastation that, that, is, that is part of the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation period, and they'll still be cursing God instead of surrendering and saying, Lord, forgive me. Without a doubt, these people's eyes were blind and their ears were deaf and they were a stubborn and rebellious people. 
It's hard to believe when we see that the love of God, the grace of God, and how many times he shows us his goodness as a heavenly father, and yet we still are stubborn and rebellious. Father, we come before you and thank you for your wonderful word, God. And again, Lord, you, you show us your grace in the midst of judgment, Lord. Father, at any time, we can turn to you, Father, especially those that don't know you, Lord, and can, and can receive your wonderful gift of salvation, God. But Lord, let it not be after it's too late. Let it not be after we've ignored and rejected your loving hand, your loving gift, and then want to claim that gift. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ, again, we, yesterday we'll never get back and tomorrow may never come. This is what we have right now. And if the Spirit of God is speaking to you and you recognize your need for Jesus Christ, then you ask him into your heart. Ask him to, to, to forgive you of your sins. To wash you clean as white as snow. And, to, and that you want to receive him as your Savior and as your Lord. And to help you now to walk with him all the days of your life. And to thank him for dying on a cross for you to save you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.